everyone. Welcome to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8, 88, right across Australia. This morning on The Breakfast Show, you're with Renee and Kate. Good morning, Kate. Hello. How are you this morning? I am good. That I'm is awesome. Good. Awesome. Um, what are you grateful for this morning? This morning, I've been thinking about how grateful I am uh, that while we sleep, our cells get renewed and restored and a lot of healing happens. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I didn't get the best sleep last night. And um, yeah, you know, when you don't experience something, you appreciate it even more when you I, see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it reminds me of when I was very, very sick and had an operation um, about seven years ago. And every day after the operation, I would just feel a little bit better and my wounds would just get a little bit better. Wow. And just every day after a good night's sleep, I just was restored and, and I was just like, oh, thank you, Lord. Wow, <laughs> just, yeah. yeah. You feel refreshed. I love those mornings where you wake up and you feel like, hmm. I'm ready. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and that's right. When you have those mornings where you wake up and you're like, cause that's this morning for me, I woke up. I was like, no, not yet. <laughs> um, but, but you know, as soon as I got to work, I was like, I got this. We got yes. this. Yeah. Um, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for, I am very grateful for eyebrows. <laughs> Why are you grateful for eyebrows? Cause I think they're super expressive and they really help me read people and help me express myself. <laughs> Okay. It's Maybe I should say face, but also I just like a good eyebrow. All right. Just, you got great eyebrows. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. so. They also are very handy for not letting water run from your head into your eye. Is that, is I that, think that's why they were created. Wow. I didn't know that. I got to do my research on eyebrows because <laughs> I know eyelashes stop the dust particles. Yes. And, and when I curl them, they, they, they're the worst. Don't like, I don't, it's nice <laughs> and pretty. Good, but. <laughs> You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. What is happening in the world of positive news, Kate? Okay, there is a seven-acre farm in, in Atlanta where residents can take a walk into a forest, take a deep breath, and then begin pulling crops right out of the land for dinner. Oh, very nice. It used to be a pecan farm and the food forest is what it's called at Brown's Mill Project contains 2,500 edible and medicinal plants available to anyone in need. So um, they realized that uh, there was a problem of hunger and they called uh, it a food desert. Mm-hmm. They, there are lots of places that have food deserts, which simply means that they don't have easy access to supermarkets. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, they wanted to do something about it. So the mission is to simply give access to green space and healthy foods. Um, and it's all about permaculture and agroforestry, which actually was a new word for me. Um, the term it describes marrying the forest and the field in a way that benefits both. Oh, quite liked that. Yes. Wait, because when you're, when you do farming, right, you have to clear the land and it's mm-hmm. like, right. And yeah. so with forest, with this kind of thing, it's like pre- preserving what's already on the land, but also just adding to it with, with oh, I some, guess, yeah, with yeah. some extra plants and things that you can munch on probably. <laughs> yes. Yep. Definitely. Okay. So the project has over 1000 volunteers, Ooh. which is so good. Yeah. How could we run? anything without volunteers. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Um, The Atlanta City Councilwoman, Carla Smith, says it's a park for everyone. 
She says, every time I go there, there's a community who respect and appreciate the fresh, healthy foods. Um, there's also a men- mentality there that people know to only take what they need. Mm. Um, so, which makes me think, uh, you know, when people have community and they have health, um, a good, healthy lifestyle, it can bring out the best in people yeah. um, and get them to... Yeah, respect each other, be mm-hmm. grateful for what they've been given. Yeah. Kind of like you said this morning, like, you know, because we don't grow our food, many of us don't have like a farm in our backyard or whatever. You know, you might, you just go to the shops and buy your food. And mm-hmm. so you're like, that's how we kind of do things. But I guess growing it in a forest and finding and foraging, that just gives you a new appreciation. Definitely. For um, all the hard work that co- goes into it and the patience that's required. Definitely. Yes. Um, so cucumbers don't just come from coals, they actually. <laughs> Turns they out. Grown. Yeah, wow. wow. <laughs> uh, any leftovers from this uh, uh, forest are harvested and distributed among the community. So there's no waste, mm. which is lovely as well. Um, and as if providing a free food forest wasn't enough, they are also holding gardening and cooking classes. And for the people who really want to um, plant, you know, have an experience with their hands in the ground, they can actually have access to uh, garden beds as Ooh, well. Oh, they have that option for them as well. That's really cool. Yeah, mm. so it's very holistic. Uh, and there are 70 forests growing in the country. American cities hold the promise of having a bright future and, uh, pardon the pun, a bright green future. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, gotta love a good pun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our next story is about Haley Arsenault, who had cancer at the age of 10 years of age, um, but she overcame it and grew up to become a physician assistant in child oncology at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Mm. So that happens to be the same place that she was treated. Mm. Um, so I just think it's really cool when you experience a blessing from somewhere and you get to give back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Haley is now 29 and she's actually been selected by St. Jude's staff to, uh, represent the hospital on the first ever all civilian space flight at the end of this year. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Huh. That's an achievement. It is. It is. So the company that are organizing it, Inspiration4, it's a private multi-day sightseeing and research trip into low earth orbit. Oh, okay. Yep. It was purchased by Jared Isaacman. He's the CEO of payment processing company Shift for Payments. And it's a massive fundraiser for St. Jude's. Um, Four seats will be available. Um, representing four pillars, of which Haley's is the pillar of hope for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Haley says, my battle with cancer really prepared me for space travel. <laughs> it made me tough. Also, I think it really taught me to expect the unexpected and go along for the ride, yeah. which you have to do when you're sick. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're just like, okay, I surrender. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what happens, happens. All right. You're just not in control anymore. Mm. Like we've, I guess we've never really been in control, but no, but um, you're aware of your vulnerability. You're so much more aware at that point. Yeah. 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 Uh, she hopes to show the kids at St. Jude's that the sky is not even the limit anymore. Ooh, love that. (laughs) (laughs) Saying that it's going to mean so much to these kids to see a survivor in space. Um, she will be the youngest American woman to exit Earth. 
which I also really loved. Doesn't it have a nice ring to, to it? Exit Earth. Exit Earth, yeah. I actually can't wait to exit Earth. Not in a morbid way. Yes. Yeah. Um, just in a, I can't wait till Jesus comes and our feet lift the ground kind of way. Yeah. You looking forward to that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Can't wait to exit Earth. Yep. Inspiration 4 is also the first entirely civilian space flight. They're obviously going to have training, don't worry. Um, as well as the first privately chartered space flight. And Isaacman announced the mission on February 1st, saying that he hopes to raise $200 million for St. Jude's, um, $100 million of that which is from his own fortune. <laughs> so that was very generous of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Haley uh, said, uh, this seat represents the hope that St. Jude gave me and continues to give families from around the world who, like me, find hope when they walk through the doors of St. Jude. Wow. So it's a lovely little story. Yep, full of inspiration and hope. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a story from Chile. Oh, okay. So the people living in the shanty towns of Chile's coastland have all the water that they could ever need, but they can't drink it because it's too salty. So they also have a lot of solar energy, but nothing to harness it with. Mm. But that's all changing. Mm -hmm. So a finalist in the 2021 Lexus Design Award, Henry Glagau, has created something that takes advantage of both these abundant resources, a solar-powered lighting fixture that desalinates water. Oh, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yes, obviously, I mentioned before that clean water is scarce uh, for the 110,000 families in the area, and power comes through unreliable electric lines. Windows are often boarded up to increase privacy and security, which removes almost all natural light. Mm-hmm. So Henry says that he wants to wanted to achieve a design which was sustainable, passive, and created a striking feature inside the dark settlement home. He says, in my development uh, process, it became apparent that I could address address the lack of indoor lighting and water mm. um, uh, access by creating a hybrid skylight and solar desalination oh, device. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Yes, so on to some news. The head of Victoria's Peak. Tourism Council says that the state's uh, economic recovery is months behind the rest of the country, with restrictions and lags on travel placing extreme pressure on businesses. So... Um, tourism and event operators bordering Melbourne and regional Victoria have been particularly hit hard as restrictions on international arrivals continue and travel from interstate wanes. Flight data has also showed that a decrease in people travelling to Victoria from interstate with the belief that border closures and lockdowns have um, unfortunately tainted the desire to go to Melbourne for tourists. Um, Victoria Tourism Industry Council Chief Executive Felicia Mariani says that the transport, attractions and events industries were suffering greatly. For those operators, it's been very challenging and it makes makes it hard for them running their businesses. Um, Another recent study commissioned by the council showed that half of the 600 operators interviewed were actually worried about business uh, viability for the remainder of the year. Um, In this survey, the business owners were concerned snap border closures and waves of COVID outbreaks in Victoria had stopped people from wanting to travel into the state. 
They said that we're struggling to get the interstate visitation because people are concerned about getting here and being caught on the wrong wrong side of the border closure. Um, that visitation is really critical, a critical uh, component of our recovery for the tourist uh, tourism businesses. Further pressure is mounting on businesses that are now entering their off-peak season amid a tourism campaign for Victorians to tra- to travel to Queensland. But for some businesses, the reintroduction of interstate travel is what is needed for them to get back on their feet. Um, uh, Michael Johnson said that he was hanging for the borders to reopen after closing down to, to visitors for six months last year. Around 50% of wildlife sanctuary visitors are overseas travellers with a mix of local and interstate travellers the remainder, in the remainder. He says, Mr. Johnson says, we're fortunate that we've had some quite good reserves for the year. So we've managed to get through, but our concern is for the future. Um, and for them, it's been a roller coaster. I've uh, been very uncertain about what's, what's the next issue that's going to pop up. Um, uh, so I guess this story is quite important because it just gives a different perspective to what's been happening. Um, it's definitely one-sided. Um, I, I can't speak for Victoria, but um, the businesses there, there are many people who are worried about job security, about mm. whether their job will be around in the next year, mm. in the next few months. Um, and so there are big concerns on that Um not only in Melbourne, um, this is a worldwide problem. Yes. Um, also in Bali, I believe. Many people, um, Bali is known for its tourism. It's many places you can go and visit and, um, and many people in Bali, um, have, have dreams of, of working as managers and tourists, tourism people in, um, that field. Um, in fact, uh, a man, Wyan Weera, um, he actually, his parents started seaweed farming, right, in Bali in the mid-80s. Um, but like many Indonesian families, uh, they encouraged their son, Wyan, to set his sights over the over the path of tourism because they could see there was potential in tourism during that time. And at that time, um, Bali wasn't as it was as it is today in, in terms of tourism. Um, it's just exploded since then. And so Wyan enrolled in a three-year course at Bali Tourism School and he eventually got his dream job at one of the mainland's big hotels. Um, and he says that since a long time ago, many people were enthusiastic about working in tourism. He's now a 35-year-old father of three. Uh, Wyan says that before the pandemic, they thought it was very promising tourism. It was, it was very rare for people to be interested in, in seaweed farming. And, uh, um, so, you know, for island hoppers looking to, to, you know, to, I guess, get a job, um, just an easy going job that they don't have to really commit to. The tourism also worked for them. So it was just very good for the locals as well. Um, but with COVID and the pandemic and many hotels shutting down and or, or just reducing in staff, he's had to co- go back to his parents' job of seaweed farming. And it's, it's not something that he's always wanted to do, but it's something he's doing to survive and to, mm. to, to, um, help the family put food on the table. So I guess all around the world, you know, um, there are a lot of people who are struggling. Yes. Who are in, who are especially in the tourism business. And, um, it's not just, it's not just in Australia, but it's, it's worldwide as well. Um, leading on to some more stories, there is a didgeridoo, didgeridoo workshops, which are working to teach rural 
Queensland students, culture, respect, and a boost of self-esteem. Um, in Queensland's North Burnett, 70 boys from year six are learning to make their own didgeridoo in a day. This is a manuals art class in Isles Void, west of Bundaberg. And the students walk away not only with an ancient instrument, but with the important life skills and newfound confidence to guide them in the future. I love culture. I love learning about culture. I love learning about other people's culture. Um, there's a deep sense of your identity in your culture. And also you can learn so much from other people's cultures, from, um, from your own. So I love this so much. Uh, they say that the boys come out learning that they are able to achieve something. Mm. Um, and it's the mentoring, especially during this process, that is very important to these boys. It's increased understanding of the local Aboriginal culture and has built respect, right? And you can't respect a culture if you don't know about it and you don't understand it. And uh, other Indigenous men have been encouraged to join and to run the program. This program is focused on teaching respect. The um, Mr. Oppo, 26, he said he started the program having no idea how to pray, play the didgeridoo and he finished not knowing how to make um, this instrument. He finished not only knowing how to make the instrument now, but also with other life skills. And there's something amazing that when you come together and these men coming together, learning about culture, learning about respect, having an appreciation um, for, for culture in that way. Uh, furthermore, uh, world leading shark tagging program in Sydney Harbour reaches a new mile, uh, milestone. Just real quickly, a, a dedicated team of scientists have ch- turned shark hunters, have turned shark hunters and reeled in a mild st- milestone. They're not hunters. They kind of just tag them so that for research and to ensure they kind of know where they are. So less shark attacks and all that kind of stuff. The world's most advanced shark tagging program is uh, taking place in Sydney Harbour, which makes sense. There are sharks in Sydney, uh, in Australia. It's known for that. And it's marked as a hundredth bull shark Um I just remember I was telling another story about sharks the other day and Lyle absolutely does not like <laughs> sharks. <laughs> he likes sharks very deep underwater. Oh. That's the only time he likes sharks. Let me guess, he's a surfer? I think, I'm not sure. No, no. Oh, no. Shell's okay. shaking her head. Okay. No, no. He just, <laughs> he's just strong opinion. So. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. That's right. Well, now it is time for our guest interview. And this morning we have David with us on the phone. Hey, David, how are you? Good morning, Renee. Good morning, Kate. Good morning to your listeners. Good to be back with you people. We do love having you on, David. This morning we're continuing your your talk series. I believe we're talking about addictions this morning, right? It's a very interesting topic, yes. Yes. So... Yes, so so we're talking more specifically on drug addiction. Renee, yes, uh, we we talk about drug addiction, but also some of the principles uh, which actually cut across in other areas as well. We focused last week a little bit on some of the causes, the things that lead to addictions. Sadly, the way that we often treat addictions is based on symptoms, while the the real way of treating in a medical model is to find the etiology, in other words, the cause 
And uh, therefore, I'm presenting, you know, looking at the causes of addiction. What I find is that many of the people over the years that I've worked with battling with addiction suffer with major stresses and strains and uh, often trauma in their life. Mm. I had the privilege of studying under uh, Professor Robert Grant. Uh, He's a trauma specialist. And he writes the following in his book, The Way of the Wound. He says, millions of victims of childhood abuse, domestic violence, violent crimes, rape, war, life-threatening illness, and natural disasters struggle with the impact of their uh, injuries. Belief systems have been injured or destroyed. The lives of many victims are without meaning or direction unless they help to integrate the significance of their traumatic wounds into more comprehensive approaches to self, life and God, victims run the risk of being co- uh, condemned to a lifetime of psychological symptoms, addictions, and wasted potential. In other words, in short, what he basically is saying is that if there's been a major event in your life that disrupted your own sense of self, um, you actually will live a life of either uh, a life of mental disorder or a life of addictions. Wow. Which is a profound statement. Yeah, and so the behavior which is merely a symptom of something deeper that has happened within your life that has really shaken you up. That's, that's what we, that's, if you focus on that more, that would, I guess, help solve the problem rather than, you know, focusing on the behavior. If, if you solely focus on, on treating the symptoms, you are actually treating the addiction itself instead of that which has led you to escape into a form of addiction. Most of the clients over the years that I worked with, and I worked with thousands of, of uh, drug addicts in Cabramatta and ever since, I have found that each one uh, nurtured a, a, a pain in their life, an injury, some major traumatic like early childhood abuse. And what is very interesting is that we so often Part of our psychological response to those things is that we carry a distorted image of uh, that event. In other words, if a perpetrator uh, abuses me, uh, it is the victim that carries that that notion of pain and major stress in their life. And they would try to numb it. And often they would try to numb it with addictive agents, uh, the, the number one um, source that is used in Australia is, is alcohol. Uh, but from alcohol, as the stress continues to build up, because alcohol doesn't remove the problem, doesn't remove the pain. And as your body gets used to the alcohol, you need something stronger, you need it more often. And the dependency, the addiction actually grows. So also does the consequences. So as you deal with, for instance, abuse early in your life, you try to self-medicate but now due to your addictive response to it, you actually add to that additional rejections, additional losses in your life as families turn away from you, as you lose your work, as relationships break up, etc., etc. Wow. Adding so fuel it just becomes compounded. Yeah, adding fuel to the fire. Exactly. Exactly. But what would happen if 
weekend in actual fact, and I've previously spoken on on, on this uh, radio program about the, the the potential. We talk about post traumatic stress disorder, but what if we can actually change our mindset and help that individual to reframe the meaning of their past and help them to discover post-traumatic growth. In other words, they can actually grow out of this pain and become a better person. Uh, or even, you know, not just um, a survivor, but thrive out of the pain of their past. That is a, a, a real challenge, but that is real possible. Because what I've found is that the addiction never resolves the problem. It just adds more to it. So how... How can you solve, how can you, how can we heal addictions then? Um, if, if you need to restore and sort of, um, come from that, from that perspective rather than trying to, you know, solve the, the addiction itself, how can we solve the problem? Before, before I go there, uh, the French researcher Jeanette says that, um, a traumatic event is like a metal stake that's been hit into the ground. Mm. Attached to that uh, stake is a chain that has some level of elasticity in there attached to the victim's ankle or your body part, and they're able to move away from that experience, that event. But as they move away, stress starts to build up. And we see in addictive people the stress pathways that comes in a cyclical uh, you know, experience. And they're able to walk away, but the, 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 more they, the further they step away from that traumatic event, the more the stress builds up and they'll reach a point eventually where they cannot take another step away. They lose their footing and it catapults them right back to that originating event. We see this happen with people with addictions. As, as they stop using the substance, the, the stress builds up. They're unable to process the things that have happened in, in the past. And therefore, they are catapulted back, often in a weekly or, or bi-weekly cycle, they back to the use of the drug again. So coming back to your question, how can these people be helped? Mm-hmm. Professor Grant, um, who is not a, not a Christian, uh, just blew my mind as I sat there listening to him as he presented and said, those individuals need two anchors in their lives. One is a small anchor, the other is a larger anchor. And he points to us and we are a team uh, ranging from psychiatrists, psychologists, counsellors and he points to us and he says you might be that small anger. And I'd like to say to your audience that those of them that are not battling with addictions most probably they can in actual fact be that small anchor for someone that creates the capacity, that creates the environment where a person can unfold and talk about their pain their, their past experiences with no judgment, no criticism, where they are purely there for that individual, encourage them, ensuring them that they hold worth and value in your eyes. That, Professor Grant says, creates the capacity to start to believe in the bigger anchor that will actually bring about the healing. Now, this is where my mind was blown by what he said, because he's not a Christian. He said that that larger anchor can only be God. In other words, the ultimate belief 
that there is a God that is in charge. He is not the author of my pain. In the midst of my crisis, God has not left me. Mm. And that God can use my greatest pain for my greatest gain. He never wastes our pain. But he can use our pain actually to make us more serviceable to help other people. Yeah. And, and research is very clear that the moment that we start to look away from our own, own pain to see how we can help other people, we actually, our mental health are benefited by as well as our physical health. Mm. Mm. And I've experienced this. It is Augustine that says that God has placed in each human being a God-formed vacuum. In other words, a desire for God. Now, that restlessness in us attached to the pain of our past, which we want to drown, if we would actually sit with that in an environment where someone can help us and coach us and counsel us and support us and be there for us, we can actually as we connect with God, find new purpose and meaning and, and, and discover that we actually have a far greater opportunity to make a difference in other people's lives than what we ever thought. Wow. That's amazing. I absolutely love the the analogy that that, that man gave, the two anchors, right? The smaller anchor being people maybe someone in your community who can really help you a non-judgmental space where you can open yeah. up and really connect and the bigger anchor being God. That's just yeah. mind blowing. The, 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 the other option is to numb your, your brain, numb your neuropathways with drugs, other drugs, medicated drugs uh, to, to just, you know, suppress the symptoms uh, that that you see in a, in a drug addict. My experience has been over the years, and I arrived in Australia in 1999, and my first assignment was to set up a program in the heart of Cabramatta, which at that stage was a drug capital of Australia. And our clients were hundreds of uh, drug addicts that were living on the streets, and we worked with them. Today, one of my, my colleagues came from Cabramatta. One of my good friends was, well, his good friend today is an elder in a church, um, was one of my clients. Uh, I've, I've seen God transform the lives of those individuals that opened themselves up to him. They've tried everything. Everything has failed them. They've tried the medical model. But the moment that they allowed God into their life, stopped blaming others for where they're at in their life, mm. took responsibility of their life, gave God access to their life, and their lives were rapidly transformed. Mm. And the majority of them have gone from there and made a difference in other people's lives. Wow. I think the moment that you open up yourself when you're going, when you're going through addiction, open yourself up to community, you're on the right, you're, you're on the right path. You're going towards the right way. But what about people who are experiencing addiction, but are, they have a lot of shame and I guess they, because one of the things that you do when you're experiencing shame is you kind of isolate yourself. What about those people who don't have any anchors? The, 
the, the challenge of shame uh, and, and the meaning of shame, we so often use that word, uh, mixing up it up with guilt. Mm. While in reality, shame psychologically means that I carry a sense that I'm defective, that I'm deficient, that I'm flawed, I don't measure up, I'll never be good enough. And that is exactly what people with addictions uh, battle with. They hide it and they even try to hide it by self-medication. Mm. So drug addiction so often is a self-medicated form of numbing to try to reach, in inverted commas, normality. Yeah. What they need, especially because they are predominantly isolated, will only mix with people that battle with addictions as well. What they need is someone that is strong enough in the community who has a strong connection with God that actually is willing to say, I'm going to reach out to that individual and befriend them and start to walk with them with no judgment. These people do not need judgment because they are already judging themselves. That is part of the component of shame. And when we are actually judging them, we are contributing. As yeah. the author of the book, Ministry of Healing, says, when we do judge them, we're actually doing the work of the devil because the devil is already uh, condemning them. If we condemn them, we are doing exactly that work Absolutely. Uh, into their lives. But believing in them help them to install faith in them, help them to show that they can put their hand into the hand of God and accept that help that is provided to them. Wow. Thank you so much, David. I believe we're out of time, but what you've shared has definitely resonated with me and I'm sure our listeners and Kate as well. So thank you so much for um, coming on and sharing so much wisdom. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.